Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac Almanac and this is your host, Sarah. In case you're wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there that secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We're here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. Before we get started, though, let's talk about our disclaimers. First and foremost, we're not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please don't take what we say on this show as medical advice. We're not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. This week, we have some pretty cool stuff to talk about with everyone. Very, very interesting stuff going on in the news. And I'm going to start out with this one that I saw the other day, and I found it on ITK, which is in the know.com. And the article was originally written by Alex Lasker, and it's called Teen Diagnosed with Rare Suicide Disease Following Minor Ankle Injury. The family of a 16-year-old girl fighting an excruciating disease is seeking the public's help to cover the cost of a supposed miracle treatment she desperately needs. Moana Rufas was diagnosed with chronic regional pain syndrome in 2013, otherwise known as CRPS, when she was just 11 years old. Following a seemingly innocent ankle injury, her father wrote on their GoFundMe page, CRPS is a form of chronic pain that usually affects an arm or a leg and typically develops after an injury, a surgery, or a stroke, or a heart attack, according to the Mayo Clinic. The pain is characterized by being out of proportion to the severity of the initial injury, though. Although there's no cure, improvement and even remission are possible if the proper treatment is obtained by the patient. The condition, which is said to be more painful than childbirth and has even been dubbed suicide disease due to the high rate of sufferers who contemplate ending their own lives, has wreaked havoc on Moana through her early teenage years. This poor girl's condition deteriorated to the point where she was constantly crying and screaming in pain. Even the slightest breeze could trigger a severe pain reaction in her leg, and Moana was unable to walk. She was confined to a wheelchair, even, her father explained. Her parents eventually moved from their home in Greece to Australia so she could attend a specialized physiotherapy program at the Sydney Children's Hospital to try and combat this very odd disease. The therapy treatment lasted 10 long weeks, and Moana bravely endured 10 hours of physiotherapy each and every day in agonizing pain as the therapist tried to desensitize and reset the pain perception in her neuropathways. The therapy was partially successful and enabled this young girl to walk again. However, the unbearable pain she experiences still remains constant. The teen's pain has become so severe that she now experiences blackouts and non-epileptic seizures with full body convulsions, which can throw her off the ground once or twice a week, lasting anywhere from one minute to two and a half hours. Sounds absolutely horrifying. 
The seizures and recovery time affect every aspect of this young girl's life, from her physical well-being and mental state to the negative impact on her education and social interactions with other kids, her father said. Just when the family's options were looking slim, they came across an ABC Australia article about the Sparrow Clinic. This is a holistic medical treatment center in Arkansas in the United States, which has successfully treated five out of five CRPS patients in the last year, including 13-year-old Romeo Paura. Paura's struggles with CRPS began at the age of nine when he injured his knee playing rugby. The condition went undiagnosed for three long years, and the pain became so great for the youngster that he asked his mother to buy him a gun so he could end his own life. After undergoing a 12-week program at the Sparrow Clinic, Romeo says he can do anything now without pain, adding that I'm not sore anymore and life is amazing. Manoa's family is looking to raise about $65,000 to cover the cost of the program and the cost of flying her and her mother to the U.S. so she can have a positive outcome at this Sparrow Clinic. This clinic is the only center in the world with lasting success in treating this disease. Her father wrote on her GoFundMe page, all children deserve a life free of pain, which is something many of us take for granted. This is our last chance. Very, very interesting. I had never heard of this particular condition before. It seems very, very mentally related, but at the same time, just super fascinating. I look forward to hearing the success story for this teenage girl when she gets through with that program, and we'll keep you posted if there are any updates on this story in the news. The next article is titled, Mystery China Pneumonia Outbreak Likely Caused by New Human Coronavirus. This article initially came out on theconversation.com and was written by Connor Bramford. Since December 2019, there have been a cluster of about 59 cases of pneumonia in Wuhan, eastern China. The pneumonia is associated with previously unidentified coronavirus related to the deadly SARS virus. We haven't heard of that in a while. Seven of these cases are thought to be serious, and one person with serious pre-existing health problems has died. The WHO has just announced the first case outside of China now, and a traveler from Wuhan is now in Thailand and has been confirmed by the WHO to have contracted this mysterious virus. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has urged countries around the world to enhance their surveillance of severe acute respiratory infections. Although no travel restrictions have been advised at this time, they want to make that clear. There is no licensed vaccine or specific treatments for this new virus either. The new coronavirus outbreak is linked to a market in Wuhan, which sold meat and live animals. Following the outbreak, the market was closed. There is no clear evidence of the virus spreading between humans, and it is thought that it has originated in animals, much like some other conditions and viruses in past. Scientists investigating the outbreak, including those from China, have reported complete virus genome sequences found in patients. The virus is not closely related to any human virus currently in circulation. So we're looking at a completely new monster here. So far, scientists have found evidence of the virus in 41 samples from patients with the disease. 
Okay, so let's talk about the specter of SARS coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus outbreak bears similarity to the 2002-2003 epidemic of SARS, which was a severe acute respiratory syndrome. The SARS outbreak, which started in South China, lasted for over nine months and spread to 37 different countries, causing about 8,000 people to become ill, and eventually 774 people died from that outbreak. Nearly 10% of those confirmed to be infected went on to die, which is an extremely high rate for some, a virus or an infection like that. The deadly nature of the disease, the frequent human-to-human spread, and the infection of frontline clinical staff contributed to the seriousness of the SARS outbreak at that time. But SARS was traced to several animals, including civet cats and raccoon dogs being sold as food in markets. The infected animals had no symptoms, but closure of the markets with animals culling alongside treatment and containment of patients led to the outbreak being very rapidly halted. Further investigations traced the SARS-like virus to horseshoe bats found in a cave in China. It is thought that civet cats could have picked up the infection from bats and then spread it to humans in city markets. SARS has not been seen since 2003, and it is thought the virus is now extinct. So they, it came quickly, spread and then was pretty much eradicated. But the new Wuhan coronavirus is not the SARS virus, and is similar to the virus thought to be the precursors of SARS in bats. Coronaviruses frequent species jumps. Coronaviruses are so named because of the crown-like appearance of their virus particles when looked at under an electron microscope. Corona meaning crown, is how they defined and named that particular aspect of the disease. But coronaviruses are a diverse group of viruses that infect and cause disease in humans and other animals, including pigs and chickens, those being the most common. There are seven coronaviruses known to infect people, including the novel Wuhan coronavirus and SARS, as already mentioned. Other human coronaviruses are those that cause the common cold as well as the deadly MERS virus. MERS is a camel common cold virus that often jumps to humans in the Middle East. MERS can cause severe pneumonia in people and spread from person to person. This particular virus was only identified in 2012 and continues to be a significant problem in the Middle East. Nearly 2,500 cases of MERS have been identified, causing about 850 deaths. Coronaviruses appear to jump easily between species, and the Wuhan virus could be the third incidence in humans in the last 20 years. In 2016, another coronavirus was responsible for 24,000 pig deaths in southern China, later named Swine Acute Diarrhea Syndrome, or SADS, it jumped from bats to pigs but did not spread to humans before it was contained. Looking a little bit further back, close animal counterparts have been found for three of the common cold coronaviruses, suggesting zoonotic origins. Also, for SARS and MERS, it appears that an intermediate host was needed, either civet cats or camels, respectively, for this jump to be successful. The reasons why are not clear to scientists at this point, but Virus hunting and mass genome sequencing efforts across the world have associated much of the known coronavirus diversity to bat species. 
Many of those infected bats are found in Southeast Asia, but other hotspots include South America, Central Europe, and Africa. What we still need to know is how the new Wuhan coronavirus came to be in humans and how closely it will resemble the SARS outbreak. This will be a focus of ongoing research like, number one, sequencing more virus strains to better understand their diversity and evolution. This will also allow scientists to develop a much-needed test and track virus spread, assessing whether human-to-humans transmission is occurring. Two, provide robust evidence that the new coronavirus is associated with pneumonia, either through detailed clinical investigations or experimental assessment of causation in lab animals. Or three, find the origin of the outbreak, determining the role of bats and intermediate animal hosts in the spread of infection. Outbreaks of new viruses such as the Wuhan coronavirus are a constant reminder of the need to invest in research in emerging virus biology and evolution. We need to know how these things infect and interact with human cells and ultimately to identify safe and effective drugs to treat or vaccines to prevent serious diseases from hitting the populace. Very, very interesting stuff. It seems apparent that in the last couple of decades, we have so many new viruses and diseases and things that are evolving so rapidly that it's really, really important that as a society, our scientists are starting to research these and find solutions to these problems before they turn up and end up being international issues. Very, very interesting stuff. Next article. And this one is somewhat related. I found this one and immediately I was interested in it. But it it was an article that originally came out in Time magazine. The author is Alice Park. And it's called Normal Human Body Temperature Has Changed in the Last Century. And it's somewhat related to those new diseases that we just talked about. But whether you have a stomach ache, a wrist sprain, or chronic disease, one of the first things doctors and nurses will do at an appointment is to take your temperature. A normal temperature means your body is humming along the way it should, but a higher temperature means you have a fever and shows your body could be fighting an infection. Since 1871, normal, as far as temperature is concerned, has meant 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. That number was determined by a German physician based on millions of readings from about 25,000 German patients. This was taken by sticking thermometers under their arms. But when doctors in the U.S. and Europe repeated the experiment in local populations, they came up with the same number. So this stuck. In a paper published last week in eLife, researchers at Stanford University reported that the normal human body temperature has dropped since that time. And that means the standards that doctors have been using to define normal body temperature and fever might need to be reworked. Julie Parsonet, a professor of medicine at Stanford University, the School of Medicine, and her team analyzed data from three large databases involving more than 677,000 temperature readings from about 190,000 people. These were collected between 1862 and 2017, which is a pretty broad range there. But the first data set is drawn from health information collected on Union Army soldiers from 1862 to 1930. The second, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, comes from the U.S. population-wide data from about 1970 to about 1975. 
The third set of data is the most recent and includes measurements taken by the Stanford Translational Research Integrated Database Environment Study, which went from about 2007 to about 2017, so about a 10-year span. The team found that average body temperatures in the earliest database, that's the one from the Union Army veterans, were higher than the temperatures recorded in each of the latter two periods. On average, the temperature dropped by about 0.03 degrees Celsius and 0.029 degrees Celsius per decade for men and women, respectively, over the 150-year span. To address the issue of whether thermometers were less accurate in earlier times or whether previous generations of doctors measured temperature differently, the scientists also compared body temperatures with a single population to minimize any potential measurement bias. Within the Union Army population, for example, the trend remained strong. Temperatures were higher among those born earlier than among those born later by about 0.02 degrees Celsius per decade. In previous studies, people who found lower temperatures in more recent times thought the temperature taken in the 19th century were just wrong. Parsonet says, I don't think they were wrong. I think the temperature has actually gone down. It makes sense that body temperature would change over time, says Parsonet. We've grown in height on average, which changes our temperature, and we've gotten heavier, which also changes our body temperature, she said. Today, we have better nutrition, better medical care, and better public health. We also have air conditioning and heating, so we live more comfortably at a consistent 68 degrees Fahrenheit to 72 degrees Fahrenheit in our homes. So it's not a struggle for us to keep our bodies warm. It's not beyond the imagination that our body temperatures would change as a result of this, which is so interesting. Perhaps the most important factor, however, is the development of treatments for infectious diseases over the last century. We've gotten rid of many of the inflammatory conditions that people had back then, like tuberculosis, syphilis, periodontal disease, wounds that don't heal, dysentery, diarrhea. All of these things have been eradicated with antibiotics and vaccines. Plus, we've conquered general inflammation with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and statins. All of these enable us to live almost inflammation-free. That, in turn, might have contributed to a creeping decline in average body temperature as the body is freed from heating up to fight off disease. Who would have thought, right? While the drop indicates that today's populations are less likely to be harboring infections, that doesn't necessarily mean they're healthier overall compared to earlier generations, since other chronic diseases like diabetes and cancer have become more common in recent decades. That means it isn't obvious that a population of people from one country, for example, whose average temperature is lower than another, is necessarily healthier. What the findings do support is the idea of moving away from using a universal normal temperature and towards a more personalized temperature reading that takes into account the many factors that can influence the measure, like height, weight, age, time of day, and outside temperature. We can estimate better what a normal temperature is for an individual person than we currently do, says Parsonet. Now we use one number, but the value may not make sense since a normal temperature may be different for different people in different countries and under different circumstances. Super interesting. 
I never would have suspected something like this. And it's not something I necessarily thought about until I this article popped up in my newsfeed, but it's great stuff. And then the last article that we have today is teaching us how to be a little bit healthier for this new year. And this article originally came out in the National Interest and it was written by Libby Richards. It's called A Little Bit of Physical Activity Every Day Can Improve Your Health. And it's something that I think we all know, but sometimes we just need that gentle little reminder. A new year typically brings new resolutions. While making resolutions is easy, sticking with them is not. Exercise-related resolutions consistently make the top 10 list. But up to 80% of these resolutions to be healthier are tossed aside by February. You know physical activity is good for you, but that isn't always enough to get or keep you moving. And if you think this way, you are not alone. Fewer than half of all American adults are as active as they should be. But how active really should we be? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend that adults get at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity every single week. So let's think about physical activity in a different way. This particular article author is a nurse who researches exercise, and she says that exercise is likely the closest thing to a fountain of youth or a magic pill that you will have in your lifetime. Benefits to all parts of your body. Here it is, folks. Research shows that every single system in the body benefits when you are more active. You sleep better. You have more energy. You find yourself in a better mood. You think more clearly and remember better. Your bones become stronger. Your body also responds better to insulin, which lowers your risk of diabetes. And you significantly reduce your risk for many types of cancers. All of this is in addition to the better-known weight and heart benefits of physical activity. The bottom line, if you want to live a long and healthy life, you need to be active. It's just that simple, folks. But that is often easier said than done. And you might be saying to yourself, hey, she can tell me all this until she's blue in the face, but, I mean, is it really that easy to incorporate that into your life? But... In fact, increasing your physical activity is probably easier than you think. You don't need to buy expensive equipment or join a gym, and you can begin to reap the rewards of physical activity almost as soon as you start by adding small amounts of movement to your daily routine. This goes a tremendously long way. One of the best ways to do this is brisk walking, and that means walking at a pace of at least a 20-minute mile. This can provide health benefits similar to running and probably more social benefits. Plus, your risk of injury is much lower, and you can walk for free with nothing more than a pair of comfortable shoes from almost anywhere. You can walk in your neighborhood, your office in lieu of waiting in line or behind the wheel of your car and pickup line at your kid's school. A 22-minute walk every day or two 11-minute ones will put you at the 150-minute mark each week. It isn't cheating either to break your 150 minutes a week into small increments. In fact, 
Even for people who are physically fit and exercise every day, breaking up periods of sitting is critically important. Even if you are getting enough exercise on the regular, sitting for the rest of the day can undo the health benefits of a traditional and typical workout. If you aren't yet ready to aim for 2.5 hours of brisk walking each week, reducing the time you spend sitting could be a great starting point. Set your goals, folks. Many experts who work with clients or patients to set goals use the acronym SMART, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-based to guide their goal setting. This simple method could help you achieve a goal to sit less and be more active this year. Number one, be specific. Rather than just sit less and move more, include when you will start and how you're going to do it. Specify what actions you're going to take to meet your goal. For example, make a list of how you can get more steps in each day by doing specific things, like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. And I know we've all heard this before, but it's time to start doing it, folks. Second thing, Make it measurable. Again, less and more are hard to measure. Instead, try for walk for five minutes every hour of sitting. Without a way to measure your goal, it becomes hard to know when you've actually achieved it. Next thing, make it attainable. If you currently don't exercise at all, 150 minutes a week may not be that realistic for you. How about three 20-minute walks per week? You can slowly increase after you achieve that first goal and choose an activity you enjoy. If you already know you hate running, a goal to do it every single day is definitely not going to be attainable for you. So make it something that you want to do and that you would actually enjoy doing. And then set those goals realistically. Your new activity goals should work for you and fit into your current lifestyle. It's great to challenge yourself, but break up challenging goals into smaller, more realistic goals to keep yourself on track. And then set a time which you're going to meet your goal. For example, You could take a certain number of steps by noon each day, or you could build up to 150 minutes a week by mid-April. You're more likely to achieve short-term goals that lead into long-term ones. So if you just set your goal for the whole year, as opposed to a month or two or three, then it's going to be much less likely that you're going to attain those goals than if you break those up into smaller little increments. One of the best ways to track your efforts is with pen and paper or a journal. Or you can use one of the many smartphone apps. As you see yourself making progress, it can be easier to keep up your routine. Also, you want to expand your view of exercise. One of the things we need to keep in mind is you don't have to go to the gym to get moving. There are ways to make exercise part of your lifestyle without too much inconvenience, like get your family involved, play tag, go on a scavenger hunt or go to a local park or walk to your favorite hangout instead of driving. Park farther away from your workplace, the store or the library and take that little bit of a walk instead of looking for that parking spot right in front of the store. Walk during your breaks at work and over your lunch period instead of sitting at your desk. Instead of having a coffee break with friends, take a walk with them. And whenever you're on the phone, stand up, walk around, do some squats, get yourself physically active. And then if you have kids that have sporting events, walk the sidelines instead of sitting in those bleachers and vegging out. Trust me, it will work. Try to find ways to make walking more meaningful. For example, try walking your own dog or a shelter dog. 
dogs make great exercise companions that will never turn down an opportunity to take a walk. Plus, I guarantee you, if you get a big dog with you, you're going to feel a whole hell of a lot safer out on a walk than you would if you were by yourself. As you undertake the big change from being inactive to becoming active, understand that setbacks can happen. But don't let that one slip up derail your entire goal. When possible, have a backup plan to deal with barriers like weather or time constraints and celebrate those small victories you make towards reaching longer term health goals. Good stuff, folks. I love it. All of it sounds attainable and like something that we could do. Let's do it, folks. Let's make this next year a healthier one for all of us. And this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our fun little podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please shoot us an email. It's just that simple. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. And we will throw that into the show notes for you guys in case you forget me just saying it to you now. But we love emails from you guys. And I promise the next show I'm going to read some more emails from our fans because I haven't done that in a while. And it's something that we do enjoy doing. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.